from Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church and Touchpoint Ministries. This is the Gary Talks About God podcast. This morning, I'm going to do something I don't think I've done before. I'm going to preach a sermon that I don't like. And I, I know what you're thinking. Well, if you don't like it, Gary, then we're not going to like it. So um, why don't we just cut our losses now, sing pure in heart, O Lord, and, and go grab an early lunch. And, and I've got to admit, there's a part of me that that sounds pretty good, except for my lunch won't be ready. So you're, you're stuck. Um, I, I promise you that it's not. I don't like it because I didn't study. I don't like it because the way I'm going to deliver, it's, it's going to be delivered with the same level of greatness that you have come to expect and enjoy. But it, it, you're going to see in just a minute why I, I think I don't want to preach the message. And though I don't want to necessarily preach it or to hear it or, or, or to deliver it, I guess, it's a message that I, I, I need to hear. If I could be so bold this morning, it's a message that you need to hear. And if I can be even bolder, if I've not been arrogant enough already in my greatness and oratory skills, that believers in general need to hear. So let's go to Matthew 21 just and read verses 12 through 27, and then we'll come back and answer the question, why does Gary not like the message that he's about to preach? Verse 12, And Jesus entered the temple... And drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the, the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was watching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither. Well, I'll tell you about what authority I do these things. So we read those verses, and it seems kind of straightforward and easy, doesn't it? I mean, we read those, and Jesus goes into the temple, talks to the temple, 
He goes outside. There's this weird story about a fig tree comes back and there's a conversation with the chief priest and the elders of the village, of the town, of the temple. And we kind of read that and you go, okay, I don't really see why that passage is difficult. I don't see what is in that passage that makes it a difficult sermon to preach. Well, the problem is, if we read it at the surface level, it's not difficult. It's not hard. There's, it's okay, that Jesus does this, he does this, he does this, he does this, he goes on. But if we stay at the surface level, we miss everything that Jesus is doing in those verses. And, and maybe that's why we want to. Because it offers us an escape. Because the moment we dig underneath the surface, what we realize is everything that Jesus dis- did was an act of judgment. You think, okay, well, we've, we've dealt with Jesus in judgments before. It's not a big deal. We've gone through Revelation, and we, we talked about the judgments, and, and we did. But who were the judgments on in Revelation? In Revelation, the judgments were on the dwellers of the earth, which we saw throughout the study of Revelation that that meant those who had rebelled against God, rebelled against Christ and the gospel. And so as we, we study through Revelation, we thought, okay, they, they never wanted to have anything to do with God. They're standing before God as judge, and, and, and they're getting the judgments that they wanted. When we come to this passage in Matthew, <laughs> the judgments are not against the unbelievers. The judgments are against his people. Jesus is judging those who should know better. You know, people like me. People like you. People who claim to know Christ as Lord and Savior. People like us who sometimes allow our Christian ease to distract us from God's plan. See, it's much easier to talk about judgment of somebody who wants to disobey God and walk in disobedience to Him than it is to turn that light on ourselves and see what Christ has to say against those who profess to be believers in Christ. really would be a lot easier for us this morning just to sing and go home. However, I think we need this morning to allow God's Word to function as that double-edged sword. To, to pierce the division of our soul and of our spirit, of our joints and our marrow, and, and, and discerning our thoughts and the intents of our hearts. To understand how perilous it can be when we stand in the way of God's plan. So when Jesus comes in and He performs these actions, there are four judgments. Okay? If, you, if you went and looked at the study guide, I reminded you that they called him a prophet. And one of the, the jobs of a prophet in speaking for God was to say, hey, look, this was the law that was given to you, and you're not obeying it. And that's what Jesus did. So he comes in, and the first thing that he does is he pronounces judgment against dishonoring worship. Against dishonoring worship. Now, there, there is a little timeline discrepancy here. That, that we just need to talk about for just a moment. If you go to the text in Mark where it talks about this, Mark has Jesus coming into the temple the next day. So in Mark's chronology, it's triumphal entry, leaves the city, 
comes back in the next day to the temple. In Matthew, Matthew doesn't give any timeline. Jesus comes in into the city, triumphal entry, and then he says he goes into the temple. Now, remember, Matthew's gospel is portraying Jesus as the coming predicted Messiah who fulfills all the prophecies. And since this is the first time that Jesus in Matthew's gospel has entered into Jerusalem, it only makes sense that his, as he goes in, he's going to go to the temple. Because the temple belongs to him. It's his temple. And so here's the Messiah coming in, and, and Matthew is saying he's going to the temple, and he is going to assert his messianic authority. And when he does that, one of the ways that he is going to do that is he is going to announce judgment on those who are there. Now, the temple, you, you can't escape the importance of the temple. Right? Red Bank, the, the church is important to us, right? I mean, the, the building. Everyone here knows that the building is not the church. We all understand that. We know that we are the church. At the same time, the building is important to us. But it pales in comparison to how important the temple was to Israel. I mean, yes, religious importance. That's where they went to worship. That's where they went to make their sacrifices. That's where they held their feast. That it was the central focus of worship of God. At the same time, it was a place of national pride and, and identity. It was, it was spectacular. There was not a place in Jerusalem where you couldn't look up. Remember, Jerusalem sits on a hill. You couldn't look up and see the temple. It dominated the skyline. They loved the temple. And you would think that if that was true, given the importance of the temple, given the fact that Christ and His Word had directed them to how to worship, that when Jesus goes into the temple, that what He's going to see is the proper exercise of worship. And we've talked about this before. Worship in the Old Testament was prescribed. There was no variation. There, there was no, okay, we have come into his house. Hey, I'm just feeling the Spirit this morning. Let's sing that one more time. Okay, let's, let's sing that one more time. You, you know, seventh time, you're like, all right, we, we're done. They, they couldn't do that. They had to go in and perform the rituals and the sacrifices and the feasts in a specific order the way that God had told them to do. So when Jesus goes into the temple, the expectation is to see his people worshiping him in the way that had been prescribed. That's not what he said. That's not what he sees. He goes in, and the first thing that we're told is he enters the temple and he, he drives out all who sold and, and bought in the temple, overturning the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. And the first thing that is drawn our attention to is he goes to the temple to see people worshiping and he finds a flea market. He finds money changers. Right? We don't have to deal with money changers here. We don't understand that. They'd come in and to give to the temple, they had to give a, a specific type of coinage because the coinage that they gave to the temple held its value pretty well. And so if they were coming from all different parts of Israel or different parts of the world, they would change their currency into the, the, the temple currency so that they could offer tithes. And here's Jesus just throwing them out, running them out. not finding worship there. What he's finding is dishonoring worship. 
When Jesus would have come into the temple, he would have entered through the, the court of, of the Gentiles. One of the great ways to think about uh, the, the temple is think of a concentric rectangles that get smaller and smaller and smaller. So let's, let's start from the smallest. The smallest was the Holy of Holies. And then a little bit bigger was the holy place. And, and then a little bit bigger was the court of priests. And then the court of Israel. And, and read, read men, okay? Then it was the court of women, then the court of Gentiles. So depending on who you were, you could only progress so far into the temple to worship. And that largest, biggest court was, was the court of, of Gentiles. And this is where they had set up their stalls, and not, not on the outside roads, not on the roads leading up, not somewhere else in the town, but inside the temple proper. And yes, there's a legitimate need here. If you're coming to the Passover to bring a sacrifice, it's, it's hard enough to travel with kids. You don't want to travel with animals. So hey, let's, let's buy the sacrificial animal there in Jerusalem, so we don't have to travel with it, tend to it, keep it up while we travel for days. Anybody ever tried to travel with a dog? You know, it's just not easy. But the people, instead of setting it up outside the temple, were inside the temple. They were in the court of the Gentiles. And they're charging these exorbitant prices. Matthew specifically mentions pigeons. Pigeons were the sacrifice of the poor. A pigeon, and I will transfer, you know, put it in modern day terms, a pigeon anywhere in town would have cost a quarter, but inside the temple it was five bucks. So Jesus goes in and, and he sees this and he, he drives them out. And when he drives them out, he quotes... A combination of Isaiah 56, 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. So let's see, let's, let's look at those texts real quick. Let's look at the Jeremiah text first. Because the Jeremiah text is where it has the den of robbers. So in Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is speaking for the Lord. And in verse 8, he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? The Lord continues and says, Behold, I myself have seen it. So we read that passage about the den of robbers, and, and, and yes, they are robbing the people, but there's a larger context that is going on there where the, the judgment against them and the rebuke against them is that the people who are supposed to be different... Right? Did you catch the list of their sins right there? I mean, basically, they're breaking all the commandments. You still murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, uh, worship idols, go after other gods. God in Jeremiah 7 says, You are breaking every last one of the Ten Commandments. You're not living like my children, part of the covenant. And then you show up into the temple and go, I'm here. We're delivered. 
then you leave the temple and you continue doing and walking in iniquity and abomination. They've co-opted the temple as, as, as basically an a, a outpost for their sinful living, not a place where they go and worship God. It's a complete and utter disregard for all things God. They don't care. Their worship is, is, is so dishonest. And in their dishonesty of worship, he quotes Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. And as Isaiah is, 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 is preaching, listen to what he says. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants. All right, so it starts off in verse 6, and God makes it clear that there are other people who are going to come to Him and going to worship Him, not just from the nation Israel. God chose Israel, but God also always allowed a way for those who are not of Israel to come and worship Him. And he says, These I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on the altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So what is happening? Israel, who was supposed to be the, the lighthouse for the nations to attract other people to God, now is setting up in the court of Gentiles, prohibiting the people from all nations to come and to worship. How can you come to worship God and there's sheep and pigeons over here and there's money changers over here? And all that noise is just permeating the temple. Can you imagine? You're a foreigner coming to worship God because Isaiah says that he is, he's made a way. So, so you're going to go to worship God and you get there and the first thing that you see is God's chosen people acting this way? Doing this? Well, what would you say? What, what, would, what would be your response? What would you, be your response today? Somebody walked in the Red Bank and saw us behaving like that. And you go, no, 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 it's, it's, it's good, it's fine. That, that dishonoring worship is preventing from people from coming to Christ. Dishonoring worship here at the temple is, is preventing the nations from coming to God because His people, His own people, are the obstacle. And Jesus comes and He pronounces judgment against dishonoring worship. But then He pronounces judgment against hard hearts. Jesus is in the temple. And as he is there, the blind and the lame approach him. Now, this is a dramatic shift, right? Just a minute ago, Jesus is turning over tables, driving out the money changers, acting indignant, as he should, righteous anger. 
and then all of a sudden turns around and exercises compassion on the sick. One of the things I find amazing about this is the lame and the sick are not driven away from Jesus by his actions, right? I, I, I would. I mean, think about it. If you see somebody acting like that, are you going to go up to them and ask them a question? Right? What do we usually do? We, we, we go, nope, not good deal with that person. You, you do this in your life, right? You're going to work and you're going to go ask somebody a question at work and you hear them fussing at somebody. Or do you keep going and ask? Or do you turn around and go back to your cubicle, go back to what you're doing and like, oh, I'll deal with them later. It's the deal with them later. The people who are lame and who are sick, they, 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 they didn't do that. They, they approached Jesus. Now, at the same time, these are the very people who are looked down by the religious leaders and the elders of the, of the temple. In society, they were on the sidelines. They could only go so far into the temple. It didn't matter if they were an Israel, Israelite male. They couldn't go as far into the temple as they could because they're lame, they're, they're sick. they got to stay out there with the, in the court of Gentiles even though they were God's people. said, you can't go any farther. The people would walk past them, maybe give them a coin or, or something. But that didn't stop them. They, they were like, hey, maybe they heard about Jesus, they heard about the miracles and thought, man, if he can make the blind and lame to walk out there, maybe he can heal us while we're in here. And so they go up to him. And as he goes up before him, it just says that, that he heals them. That's all it says. The blind and lame came to him in the temple and he, he, he healed them. Now you would think that the chief priest and the scribes would be excited about this, right? Here's the Messiah in his temple healing the sick, right? I mean, if nothing else, if nothing else, baseline, the sick and the lame are healed, they can now leave the temple and the chief priests don't have to look at them, right? I mean, let's just, just go that, that, that low. They'd be out of their hair. You would think that they would rejoice, like, okay, great, Jesus has gotten rid of a burden for us at least, but they can't even manage to be thankful for that. It says that they became indignant. <laughs> They, 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 they were indignant. Right? That, that's stump foot across their arms, you know. That, that scowl. They, they, they were indignant. They, they can't believe what is happening. And they, and, and they go up to Jesus and, do you, do you hear what the kids are saying? I mean, not only are they mad that Jesus healed the people, they're mad that the kids are praising God. Right? They were told to do this. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 told them, teach your kids the things of God. When they wake up, when they go to sleep, when they rise up, when they walk, when they go throughout the land, teach them all of that I commanded you. And so the kids should learn to praise God. Here the kids are praising God, and, and they're just like, I can't believe they're doing that. They're indignant. You, you can almost hear them sputtering, right? Did you see what they did? I love Jesus' answer. Right when they go, or, do, you, do, you, do you hear what do you, do you hear you hear what they're saying? Jesus just goes, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I love that answer. Just he gives them no no room to maneuver, and he looks at them and says, "Have you not heard 
The mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. That's a quote from Psalm 8. Psalm 8 verse 1 says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And you, you hard-hearted chief priests and scribes, the ones who should know Psalm 8, can't even ascribe majesty and glory to God. You, you, you can't worship Him. Yes, it's a great thing that the kids are praising God and worshiping Him, but you, the chief priest and the scribes, should be leading the praise, not indignant because that they are. I mean, they're so blinded by all the extra rules and regulations that they have attached and how worship is supposed to be that instead of rejoicing that the lame walk, the blind see, the kids praise God, they're pouting. They're pouting because their hearts are hard. They don't want to see what God is doing. But then Jesus pronounces judgment against fake fruit. Verses 18 through 22 were, were actually on the next day. Jesus left Jerusalem after the incidents in the temple. He goes back to Bethany and the next morning he returns to Jerusalem and on his way, he, he's, he's hungry. Right? That's, that's nice of Matthew, just a little reminding us of his humanity. Right? He was hungry. And Jesus did what we might all would do if we had a fruit tree in our yard. Go up to it and pick something off and eat it. As a kid, I remember my grandfather having peach trees, apple trees, and a plum tree where we live. Peach trees never did anything. Um, we, we, don't have, we don't have the soil where I live to have peach trees. The apple trees only got about that big. They were never very good. They're all right. I cut down the apple tree a couple of years, much to the chagrin of most of the people in my family. Um, but the plum tree, the plum tree did pretty well. I don't know why. It, it just did. They were good plums. I, I, I like the plums. I would just, you know, I'd be outside, I'd pick one off and, and eat it. And it, it, it was good. I enjoyed it. So here's Jesus doing what all of us would do. Walks up to a fig tree. Now, for us, I don't, anybody here have a fig tree? I don't have a fig tree. You have a fig tree? Of course. I mean, of, of course. It, it would have to be Julie. So Julie, stand up and tell us all. No. One, one of the interesting things about fig trees is that they will produce these small buds on the tree that are actually edible. Then they would produce leaves, and then those small buds would fall off where the fig would actually, the fruit would actually would, would grow. Now, those small buds were, were kind of bitter, but edible. You, you could eat them, and if you're hungry, right, you, you know, you, you'd walk up and pick off a couple and eat them. So when Jesus sees the tree, and, and notice what it says about the tree. He says he sees it, and he says it saw nothing but leaves. And that's important. The fact that it had leaves on, leaves on it means it should have had the buds as well. It should have had some fruit, something. Not huge uh, figs that are delicious. It should have had something. That, even if it's a small fruit, it should have had something on it. But nothing was on it. 
So it says that Jesus reaches out and or curses it and says, May no fruit come from you ever again. And you read that and go, Sounds like Jesus being vindictive and petty, right? I mean, we've all seen the Snickers commercials, right? You're just not yourself when you're hangry. Here, here, here's Jesus. He, he, he's hangry and he's not acting like himself, and so the fig tree doesn't have any fruit. He just curses the fig tree. Now, we, we've read enough of the Gospels to know that that's not what's happening. So the question is, what is happening? What, what, what is going on? This is a visual parable. It's probably the best way to understand it. It's a visual parable. Jesus comes up to the tree. There's no fruit on the fig tree. And a fig tree in the Old Testament in Israel life was a symbol for the good life promised by God. It was a symbol that God was blessing you, that, that God is being good towards his people. His people are, are obeying his rules, his laws, including how to worship and, and, and pray. And so the fig tree became a symbol of blessing. So if the fig tree had fruit on it, God is blessing his people. So what's happening? Well, the tree, you can accuse it of false advertising, right? It's advertising that it's got fruit, but when you go to the tree, there's no fruit there. The, the, the tree was barren. Follow Matthew's logic. He goes to the temple. He expects to find worship. And he finds this honest worship. Money changers, people selling at exorbitant rates. He heals the lame and the sick and he expects people to praise him for that. He goes to the temple looking to see the fruit of Israel and what does he find in the temple? He finds a barren nation. And a nation that is not worshiping God the way they were instructed to. A nation that was given the privilege to be light to the nations, leading others to come to God and to worship them. They were supposed to be exercising what we call today fruit in their lives, fruit that they are God's people, fruit that marked them as different from everybody else. And when Jesus arrives in the temple... His own people are becoming an impediment to the worship. And so just as the fig tree in the Old Testament was a symbol with its fruit of a good life and God's blessings on His people, a withered tree in the Old Testament was a symbol of God's judgment. Where the fig trees did not bloom and produce fruit. So Jesus is, is giving the people a, a visual parable saying, I expected you to look like this, to be doing this. And when I come and I expect, inspect your fruit and I look behind the leaves, I don't see anything there. You're advertising that you look good. You go to church on Sunday mornings. You carry your big reference Bible. You take notes. You advertise that the fruit is there. 
and then you go out in the world and you don't look any different. And Jesus pronounces judgment against fake fruit. But then finally, he pronounces judgment against false piety. He enters the temple again, and this time he's challenged by the chief priest and the elders. Again, the leaders and authorities of religious worship in Jewish life, if anybody should know what Jesus is doing, these people should. Should absolutely know. And they approach Jesus in all their indignation. What authority do you do these things? What authority do you come in as they sing Hosanna to the Son of David? What authority do you come into the temple and turn all these things over? What authority do you heal the lame and the sick? What authority do you curse the fig tree? On what authority do you do this because you haven't been to our schools? You haven't been educated. We didn't hand over our authority to you. So by what authority do you think you can come into the temple and do what you've done? After all, this is, this is our temple. This is our temple. Don't you come in here and, and, and make waves. Hey, you need to justify yourself to us, Jesus. And so Jesus employs a, a traditional rabbinic teaching and training where he challenges the person to look at their own assumptions before answering the question. He goes, hey, I'll, okay, I'll answer your question. But first, John the Baptist, let, let, let's, let's talk about John the Baptist for just a minute. He came preaching and teaching and baptizing. Under whose authority did he do that? Which one? And Jesus puts them in a corner. And it's going to reveal their true beliefs. Right? Because here they are. And you remember, they're in the temple, so they look good, Right? They got their Sunday best on. Jesus says, whose authority did John do this? And they're sitting there, they're thinking, well, if we say that it was man, then we have a problem because we didn't authorize him to do that. And if we say from man, then the question is going to be, which, which man gave him the authority? And none of the chief priests and, and elders did, so they, they can't say from man. But the other question is, the other answer is even more difficult for them, because if they say from God, then they have a really big problem. Because if they say that John's authority was from God, then the next question Jesus go ask is, why didn't you listen to him? When he came preaching repentance and baptism for sins, why didn't you listen to him? Because if his authority was from God, and he's preaching this, and in his preaching he says he is preparing the way for the one who would come, and then one day when he's outside baptizing, and I approach, and he looks at me and says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Why didn't you listen to him? Why don't you pay attention? Here you are. You look good. you got all this piety. Everybody's looking up to you thinking you're the leaders and you're the rulers. You're supposed to know this. Why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you pay attention? And all they can say is, we don't know. 
We don't know. And that answer reveals their lack of integrity because they can't admit as, as leaders of Israel and leaders of the temple that they completely miss God working. They completely missed what God was going to do. And if they can't understand what John did, there's no way they can understand what Jesus is doing. They didn't understand John saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's no way that they're going to understand the crucifixion. There's no way that they're going to understand that he was, he, he was killed for our sins and raised for our justification. There, there, there is no way that they're going to understand. And so they just say, we don't know. We don't know. So I was writing and working through this sermon. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to close it. And to be honest with you, I have no idea. It's blank on my sermon up here. I just, I, I left it blank. And I think part of it is because we all know. <laughs> I don't think I need to sit here and tell you, all right, what's the application? How do we apply this to our hearts today? Because if you're like me, instead of trying to figure out how to apply it, you're praying that the Holy Spirit would remove the sword from between your soul and your spirit. That he would stop revealing the intentions of our hearts and our thoughts. And stop making us ask the question, how as his people are we maybe being an impediment to the gospel and to the things of God? How has our own Christianese been an impediment to the people around us? What assumptions and thoughts do we have of what right worship and, and right praise looks like? Where have we jumped in front of God's plan kind of like Peter and said, <laughs> Heaven forbid, Jesus, that you go to the cross and die for my sins. God forbid that would happen. You know, Jesus says that he will save his severest judgment for his people, for me and you, because we're the ones that should know better. The Gary Talks About God podcast is a production of Touchpoint Ministries and Red Bank Missionary Baptist Church in Germantown, North Carolina. Want to learn more? Visit our website at www.redbankmbc.com. If you enjoyed this content, please like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us.